Our Father, we come before you this morning as people who are prone to wander and we feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love and so we pray this morning that you would take our hearts and seal them, seal them for your courts above and do it for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, we've come together in the presence of God for the joining in marriage of this man and this woman. Our Lord Jesus Christ said of marriage that from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together let no one separate. Marriage is the symbol of God's unending love for his people and of the union between Christ and his church. So the Apostle Paul teaches that the husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church and that the wife must give due honour to her husband. Marriage should be honoured by all and is not to be entered into lightly or carelessly, but with reverent and serious respect for those purposes for which it was instituted by God. Marriage is a gift from God for human well-being and for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us. It is a lifelong union in which a man and a woman are called so to give themselves in body, mind and spirit and so to respond that from their union will grow a deepening knowledge and love of each other in the joys and and sorrows of life, in prosperity and adversity, they share their companionship, faithfulness and strength. In marriage, a new family is established in accordance with God's purpose so that children may be born and nurtured in secure and loving care for their well-being and instruction and for the good order of society to the glory of God. This man and this woman have now come here to be joined in this holy union to which God has led them. They seek his blessing on their life together that they may fulfil his purpose for them and they ask us to support them in this prayer. So if any person here can show why they may not lawfully be joined in marriage, they should speak now or hereafter remain silent. And I charge you both as you'll answer before God that if either of you know a reason why you may not lawfully be joined together in marriage, you now confess it, for be assured that those who marry otherwise than God's word allows are not joined together by God, neither is their marriage lawful in his sight. Feels weird, doesn't it, reading that, without a wedding happening? (laughs) There was a wedding here yesterday, uh, and as happens week after week, that summary of marriage was read out. And in fact, not just week after week, but year after year, for the last 400 years or so, that summary uh, from the Book of Common Prayer has been read at the start of every um, wedding uh, according to the rites of the Anglican Church of Australia, right? It is a summary of the Bible's teaching on marriage. And while it's been read at the start of weddings for the last few hundred years, you'll notice that the reference point of that summary of Christian marriage is not the marital problems of the King of England 400 years ago, right? The reference point of 
our Christian understanding of what marriage is and what it's for, it's grounded at the very beginning, at creation. It's consistent with what we've been saying the last few weeks as we've started this journey through the book of Genesis, that God has stitched meaning and morality into the very fabric of the universe and that includes marriage. Marriage is right there from the very beginning as a key component of God's good order, of God's purposeful creation, of God's good intent for people to be his image bearers in the world, to be fruitful and to multiply, to rule the world and subdue it, to care for it under his own loving rule and care. Marriage is a huge theme that runs the entire length of the Bible. We have a marriage here at the very beginning of creation and we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will be our entrance into the new creation. And in between, the Bible is filled not just with helpful tips on how to be married, but the Bible is filled with deep theological foundation for understanding how marriage is meant to help us Help us not just be people in this world, but to help us understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that marriage is meant to help us understand the gospel and the gospel is meant to help us understand marriage as well. Marriage is a wonderful gift that God has given and he has revealed in his word, the Bible, what he he made marriage for, how he made people and how he made marriage to be a key place in which people express their humanness, how people reflect his loving faithfulness. And so we're challenged again this morning that no matter what our culture and our laws might say, that the definition of marriage is not a construct for us to mould and to change and to play with, to fit our preferences, to fit our culture or anything like that. But that marriage is something, a good, given by God to be received, to be received like all the other elements of meaning and morality that God has stitched into the very fabric of the universe, received with joyful submission to his will, with reverence and humility, God has stitched meaning and morality into the universe and this is what will always be best for humanity, always be best for us to thrive and to flourish under him. And so we've got this foundational passage in front of us uh, and we see as it, inf- uh, as it unfolds, we see man's need, we see God's provision and man's response. Have a look first at man's need, which is there in verse 18, where the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make a a helper suitable for him. And again we're reminded that it's all God's initiative in this creation account, isn't it? He's still the main character. Sorry, you still haven't been written in as the main character yet into the story. It's still God, it's still his action, it's still his initiative. He made humanity on day six of creation in chapter one and humanity are meant to be the pinnacle of his creating work. That male and female, humanity is meant to be uh, uh, the image of God in the world, uniquely his image bearers in the world, unlike the rest of creation. That there is no rival 
uh, that we do not rival him as his image bearers, we do not replace him as his image bearers, but we are meant to rule and care for his creation under him. We're meant to image forth together his glory in the world. And so as chapter 2 here zooms in and kind of gives us another camera angle of God creating humanity, we're given further insight into what God's design and his plan for people is. Right? And we notice that it's God is the one who recognises the need. He's the one who says it's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, Here in the creation account, that line is a a distinct break, isn't it, in the pattern? Do you remember chapter 1, the pattern that kept going all the way through as God said and it was, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, but as we zoom in here we see something that is not good. Everything else that was made was made to fit perfectly God's good design and the purpose for which he made it. Man on his own is not good. Man on his own cannot fulfil the purpose that God has given him. To care for the world and to rule it, to be fruitful and to multiply. You can imagine the man standing there and looking at the animals and looking at God and saying, how is it that you think I'm going to do this? God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. That he might truly reflect God's image in the world. For humanity to fulfil God's purpose, man cannot be alone, but he needs woman. It's a picture that we need community It's a picture that we're made for companionship. It's a picture of the great value and dignity that God gives to humanity, male and female, the great equality that men and women have. But if your growth group's anything like mine, we hit that line, a helper suitable, and kind of cringed a little bit. Because it does sound at least a little bit demeaning to the woman, doesn't it? So what we did in our growth group is we went looking through the Old Testament to see how that word helper is used in other places. Can it be retrieved with some good? And we noticed that helper, more often than not in the Bible, is a word used to describe God himself. It's the same word that the Bible uses to talk about God and the way that he comes to the aid of his people. In the way that he comes and meets the very essential needs of his people and gives them salvation. It's not a demeaning word at all. It's an essential word. It's a strong word. It's a word that speaks to an amazing companionship between the man and the woman, that she will come to his aid, that she will come and fulfil a purpose that he cannot fulfil in his weakened and helpless and unproductive state on his own. It's not the kind of let the little kid come and help but I can really handle it on my own kind of helper. 
It's the kind of God himself meets the need and comes to our aid and lifts us up from our helplessness kind of helper that is on view. As the woman is made and brought to the man, given away as the Bible's first ever bride, she comes to his aid in his state of helplessness, the essential complement, the one who will fulfil his humanity so that together they can achieve God's good purpose. Man alone is weak and incompetent. He cannot achieve God's purposes for humanity. He needs the one who will perfectly correspond to him so that together they might rule and care for God's world under him. And what God provides is the suitable helper. She's suitable because she perfectly fits that need. She corresponds exactly to what he needs in order that humanity might be fruitful and productive and purposeful. In creating woman, God extends the one humanity. Notice that he doesn't say, it's not good that man should be alone, I'm going to create another humanity to go with this one. He doesn't do that. He says, I am going to extend this one humanity and bring a suitable helper from within him himself to be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That he might look at her and say, she's of the same stuff of me, except gloriously different. And the narrative of God's provision helps us to see the unique suitability of the woman in God's good design to complete his humanity. Have a look at God's provision, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. Here is the picture, right, of man doing exactly what he was made to do. Exercising rule and care over God's world under God's own loving rule and care. Uh, But this parade of creatures... Right? It isn't simply about organising the world. It isn't about just the, the task that man is performing. It's there to show that there isn't another creature in the world who can be the perfect complement to the man. That nothing else in all of creation can be that complement that he needs, the, the suitable helper who will enable him to complete the design of humanity. But no suitable helper for Adam was found. So verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now before you get too distracted and start counting your ribs, right, I think the point here is that God once again has his fingerprints all over the specific creation of humanity just as he was with the man, with his fingers in the dust, in order that she might perfectly be, she might be perfectly fit for his purposes. 
to show once again that he's not starting from scratch, that he's creating the woman to be part of the same humanity, the same flesh and blood as the man. And as God himself gives away this first bride of history, it's that beautiful picture of God's goodness and our joy in the way that he's made us to enjoy him and to enjoy each other. And so as the old writer Matthew Henry said, she's not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near to his heart to be beloved. And you can say that the beauty of this scene is not lost on the man. When you see his response in verse 23, The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The very first words of a human quoted in the Bible is a poetic couplet. It's a song of joy and thanksgiving. When Adam sees the beauty and the purpose and the goodness and the design that God has stitched into this world and has given him in the gift of this woman who will be the suitable helper, who will perfectly fit, that together they might image forth his glory, that together they might be productive and fruitful, that together they might reflect his glory to the world. He looks at her and says, that is one who is like me, unlike anything else in all of creation that he's watched parade by and gone, nup, 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 yes. In woman, he sees the perfect counterpart. The one who corresponds to him is the exact counterpart is beautifully the same and spectacularly different. And friends, this spectacular difference and the beautiful equality are two things that we have to hold together in our understanding of marriage and of men and women. We have to keep holding that up to say here is God's good design and God's good intention for men and women in marriage. Say it's not just the two ends of an hourglass that are interchangeable with each other. There is fierce equality but also beautiful difference between a man and a woman and it's that complementarity that's needed for marriage. It's only in the complementarity of the man and the woman that they can truly be one flesh and united together to be fruitful and multiply, to be productive and purposeful the way God intended. And so we want to avoid those two extremes that say there's absolutely no difference between men and women. They're just interchangeable ends of the hourglass. And the other extreme that says men and women are from different planets. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. That's not in the Bible. Right? 
But as typically is the case, we want to keep coming back to the Bible to hear what the Bible has to say, what God has to say about the difference between men and women and how those, that fierce equality and that beautiful difference goes together to enable the one humanity to fulfil God's good purposes. This is what writer Oliver O'Donovan says about it. He says, The organisation of human sexuality into male and female, the particular attraction of two adults of the opposite sex and of different parents, the setting up of a home distinct from the parental home, the uniting of their lives in a shared life, these form a pattern of human fulfilment which serves the wider end of enabling procreation to occur in a context of affection and loyalty, And whatever else has happened in history, Christians have wanted to say, this is what marriage really is. Particular cultures may distort it, individuals will certainly fall short of it, and it is to our cost in either case. In either case, for it continues to reassert itself as God's creative intention for human relationships on earth, and it will be with us in one form or another as our natural good, until but not after the kingdom of God shall appear. This is what God has stitched into the very fabric of the universe, of how he expects men and women to come together in a particular relationship of marriage for our good and for his glory. We might have invented the white dress and the wedding march. We might have invented the scourge of confetti. (laughs) We might have invented the throwing of the bouquet and the idea of a honeymoon. But God is the one who has invented marriage and he has done so for our good, for our joy. and for his greater glory in the world. This picture of marriage reminds us that it's only within the safety and the permanence of this marriage relationship that God's gift of sex should be found. And again, it's to our detriment, it's to our loss when we look at the way God has made the world and given us marriage and we seek to pull these things apart, when we seek to distort his order and his goodness that he stitched into this world. But I'm sure, like me, you're sitting there thinking, that's all well and good. But what about all the ways that I see this beautiful equality and this beautiful difference of the man and the woman marred by sin and selfishness and the way that we continue to fall short of this ideal in our own personal experience and in our community as a whole? It's so sad, isn't it, to see the self-sacrificial care that the man is meant to express for his wife 
and the self-sacrificial support that the woman is supposed to, to give to her husband, that so often it becomes self-centred control and competition as we upend God's good design and his intention for our marriages and for our world. Which is why the rest of the Bible, in talking about life and marriage, in talking about men and women, continues to point away from the failure of our own marriages to live up to the ideal and to the perfect picture of the Lord Jesus who does live up to that ideal who is the perfect man, the perfect groom who never lets down his bride, the church, whose self-sacrificial love for his bride, for his people and the joyful submission of his church to his love and care continue to be the model and the pattern that the Bible calls us to. Friends, God has given us this foundational reality for the good of humanity and for the glory, his glory in this world. Marriage, as the Bible speaks of it, is foundational to human existence. But it is not ultimate. It's interesting, isn't it, that something so foundational and given so much reverence and given such a high position in creation is something that won't be found in the new creation. And the reason is because Jesus, the the wedding of Jesus to his people, is what perfects and completes God's design in marriage in the new creation. And so that our marriages here and now are meant to help us look to Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, and the the wedding between him and his people, his church to that day when his kingdom will come and the the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 will be not only our hope but our reality. And it's an encouragement for us who are living in unhappiness in our marriage or discontent in our singleness to be reminded that while marriage is foundational for humanity, it is not ultimate for humanity. And that if the gospel is meant to show us the, the, the shape, if, sorry, if marriage is meant to show us the shape of the gospel, then singleness gives us the opportunity to see the sufficiency of the gospel. If our marriages are meant to show the shape of the gospel, then singleness is meant to show us the sufficiency of the gospel reminding us that it's being united to Jesus in the joy of his perfected kingdom that is our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope in this life is not a happy marriage unless you're talking about the joy of being united to Jesus in his kingdom forever. When it comes to the shape of singleness, and its reflection of God's good intention for for marriage and the sufficiency of the gospel, I don't think I've seen it more helpfully written about than in an article by our own Jocelyn Bignall. And I'm going to finish with this quote from Joss. 
She writes, There is damage that the romantic narrative and idolatry of marriage does for single people and it will continue on into their marriages. The other person is supposed to completely, complete me. I'm supposed to never feel lonely again. Sex is supposed to be the thing I will now never be able to live without. All the problems I experienced as a single person should now be resolved. And any married person reading this is probably cringing because they know those claims are ridiculous. And neither you, your spouse, nor your marriage can handle that kind of pressure. Marriage is a good, but it's not everything. And discontentment comes when we expect marriage to bring us all our fulfilment. The thing is, if we can't find contentment on this side of the fence, then I don't know if we'll ever be able to find it on the other. Because our contentment, our fulfilment, doesn't come through our relationship with another person or lack of one. It comes through our relationship with Christ. Before I am or am not the bride of any man, I am part of the church, the bride of Christ. The narrative I'm part of is much bigger than a romance. It's the narrative of redemption, begun in the Garden of Eden and ending in the city of Revelation. The the trajectory I'm on is one of sanctification, being made more like Jesus. And the maturity for which I'm striving through the power of the Holy Spirit is in Christ, not in checking off the list of worldly achievements that qualify me as an adult. My singleness may be a season, it may not. Even the longest marriage is only for this lifetime. My contentment lies in something far more secure and far more permanent than this world or any person can offer me. It lies in Jesus. Do I feel this contentment every day? No. But I'm growing in it. As I grow closer to Jesus, my satisfaction in our relationship grows. No fairy story, no love song, no Instagram post can compare to these glorious riches. And so, by God's grace, I seek to live as God commanded me, as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to me, just as he has called me. Friends, God has given us an amazing good in this gift of marriage as he has stitched meaning and morality into the very fabric of the universe, but he's given us something even greater in the Lord Jesus, who self-sacrificially laid down his life to purchase for himself his bride, who will be united to him forever. So as we receive and as we submit to with humility and reverence, this good that God has given us, may our marriages reflect the shape of the gospel of Jesus and may our singleness reflect his sufficiency. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love. So please take and seal our heart 
hearts for the wedding of the Lamb and the joy of his kingdom. For Jesus' sake.